If you'll take your Bible and turn to John chapter 1, we're continuing in our study of John, a deeper look into the gospel according to the Apostle John. We have, though, though we've been in this book a few weeks, we're really just, just getting started, as you can see. There's a lot to cover. There's a, there's a lot to cover. There's a lot of truth. There's a lot of truth that applies, of course, directly to our lives. We started out in the chapter with a great introduction, a magnificent passage of Christ and His beauty and His glory and His eternal nature as the Word of God. And then we have moved down and seen Him as life, as light. And now we are focusing in on the fact that the light has come into the world. And we picked up last week in verse 9, which said, That was the true light, which gives light to every man. It's the light that was coming into the world, or that has come into the world. Remember, we emphasized last week that it is the light that John says is coming into the world. His emphasis is on the light, not on man. Yet he does say that the light has shone on all men. It has, in some way, exposed all men to itself. We continue, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own received him not. We're going to pick up in verse 10 and 11. The light came into the world. The light is the true, authentic light. There is no light quite like this one. Although there are smaller testimonies, there are those who bore witness, there were prophets who prophesied, there were those who wrote about the light. Now the light is coming to the world, John says in verse 9. The light not only came into the world, but the light exposed everyone around it. The light exposed everyone. Now we turn to the truths here. And we see that Jesus, and I have inserted His name because look what John does. He now moves from talking about light and life and word, and He says He. He uses the personal pronoun, He was in the world. The world was made through Him, but the world did not know him he came to his own and his own received him not jesus the light was unknown to mankind that's the first thing we need to see in this verse he was unknown to mankind he was unknown because of man's condition and this doctrine is a main theme of john there are three main truths john drives home from one through the end of his Book. You need to write these down if you're taking notes. Three main things John wants you to see above everything else that he writes. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is glorious above all other things. Secondly, man is totally fallen. Totally depraved. He's going to start Right here in this verse, in verse 10. And he's going to continue throughout the book to show that man is totally fallen. He's totally depraved is the doctrine that uh, some, would you, some of you would recognize, total depravity. Jesus Christ is glorious above all things, John says. 
man is totally fallen, totally beneath sin. There's not one part of man that is good. He's totally fallen. And third, God sovereignly, it's very important, God sovereignly elects some for salvation. And His election is the basis of all of our salvation. God's sovereign election is the basis for every individual's salvation. And we're going to get into that truth here as we move down through verse 11 into 12 and 13. And it's going to be repeated and repeated and repeated over and over. These three truths are going to be shouted out to us for page after page after page. You can't read a page of John without seeing one of these three truths, hardly. It is saturated in this book. Not only is it saturated in John's writing, the truth is what? If you start in Genesis and go to Revelation, those three themes are saturated in the Bible. Those three themes are saturated in the Bible. Jesus is glorious. Man is falling completely. And unless God does something, man is lost. That's all throughout the Bible. But we find it here. He starts out, why is Jesus unknown? Well, it's the condition of man. Obviously, obviously, he says there is a light. If light is shining, it is not the problem of the light. That's not why it's not seen. If light shines in a dark room, you should be able to see it. The only thing that would prevent you from seeing it would be your personal problem. Correct? It's not a problem with light. When light shines in darkness, it's easily seen. The problem would be on your end if you couldn't see it. Not on the light's end. There is no blame to lay at Christ's feet why people cannot see His light. He is glorious. He is bright. He is shining. He is unquenchable. He is unstoppable. If you cannot see His light, it is not His fault. It is your problem. That's the truth John wants you to understand. The light came into the world, but the light is unknown. The light is unseen. The world didn't know who He was. If you just look at the Christmas story, this is true. If we read through Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, we would see this clearly. Wouldn't we? Think about it. Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem. They talk to an innkeeper. The innkeeper does what? No vacancies. After doing that several times, unable to find a place for his pregnant wife who's about to give birth, he finally finds refuge in a stable. So the innkeeper doesn't want the Messiah in his place. He wants him in the stable. So he goes out and he's born in a stable. Did anyone come to visit? Not until the angels commanded it to be so. Men didn't see it. The angels had to command it. So they show up. Fast forward a little bit in the story. Two years later, about two years later, three groups of wise men come from the east. They've seen a star. 
And they understand and perceive that that star is the sign of the king born over the Jews. Isn't that what they said to Herod? We've come looking for the one born king of the Jews. Herod has no clue. He's a Jew. He has no clue. Nobody's been born in my house. Totally missed it. Didn't see it. Unknown. The light was unknown. Not only is that true, but the religious leaders in the Jewish nation had no idea that their Messiah had been born. They had read the Bible all their lives, the Old Testament. They had seen the prophecies. They knew that this was the case, that He was coming. He would be born in the city of David. He would be born lowly. Like we read this morning in Isaiah 53, he would be a tender plant that would come up from the ground and then be trampled on by the, the judgment of God at the end of his life. They had all of these truths, but they don't see it. It takes some Oriental Easterners showing up who saw the sign and say, he's here. And so what's the response in the Christmas story? They get excited, right? They run, they say, sorry, we missed it. Let's all worship Jesus. That's not what they do. What does Herod do? Protects his throne. If there's one born king of the Jews, we got to stamp him out. Every baby boy two years and under, wipe him out. Jesus has to escape to Egypt to live. He was rejected. He was unknown by his people. The people who should have known him rejected him. John 3, 19, if you just hold your place in John 1 and flip to 3, 19, the answer is given to us by Jesus. Why no one noticed that he had arrived. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light. Because of their deeds which were evil. Do you see that? Jesus says, the problem is not that I wasn't obviously the light. I was obviously the light. But you have rejected me because you love your dark, wicked, evil, fallen deeds more than you love me. And that's the judgment on you. That I've come. I am clearly the authentic Messiah who has come to take the sin of the world on me and pay the price for you. To ransom you to glory. And you've rejected me because you love darkness and evil. That's the commentary of Jesus on the people. The sin of the ancient world was great. Sometimes we get caught up in this idea that there's never been evil in the world until our generation. You know, homosexuality just poof one day showed up post-1950. I hear my granddad all the time talking about when I was a kid there wasn't no gays. Yes, there was. Have you lost it? Nobody ever lived together without being married in my day. Sure they did. Don't deceive yourself. There's no new sin under the sun. It's been since the beginning. I mean, if you need proof, go to the Old Testament. Start reading. Any man who is so fallen, he would have 700 women in his home to take care of, has a problem. He's got an addiction he needs to deal with. I mean, it's a real problem. Sin is not some new thing. But we treat it like it is. We're the only generation that's ever sinned. 
We're the only wicked generation, right? Don't you hear that all the time? It's worse now than it's ever been. I beg to differ. Sodom and Gomorrah? The flood? I mean, something tells me there's always been wickedness. In Jesus' day, the Roman Empire was as wicked a place as you would ever find. Our country pales in comparison to what those people were doing. We really do. They were slaughtering their children by the hundreds, by the thousands, by the millions. They had slaves by the millions. They had prostitution by the hundreds of thousands. Sin was rampant. Pompeii, one of the great cities, was destroyed by the uh, volcanic eruption of Vesuvius in AD 79. This being the case, and that's a fine car, you know. (laughs) This being the case, we've just now found their society in recent time. Do you know that the archaeologists have shown and proven that we have never reached the depths of wickedness again that those people were practicing in their city? Do not fool yourself. Sin was rampant in the day of Christ. We are not doing anything today that wasn't done then. The sin of today's world is great. I'm not belittling it. But what I'm trying to show you is that the truth of the matter is the world has been dark since the fall of Adam into sin. It has been exceedingly wicked. And it's continued in exceeding wickedness, not because Jesus is not glorious, Not because Jesus is not brightly the light. Not because He's not obviously the Messiah. It's not Jesus' problem. Jesus is shining in the world, but the world loves its evil and loves its darkness. And the truth is, many of us, many of you in this room, love your darkness rather than Christ. It's the same problem that the Jewish leaders have, you have it right now. If, you could, if we could do heart surgery and pull your heart out, it would testify to the fact that every part of you hates Christ, although you're putting a good show up by being here today. You hate Jesus, you hate the light, you love darkness, and you want to stay in the evil and just leave me alone. Let me go my merry way. There's condemnation. There is a judgment. It is that the light has come in the world and you have loved your darkness. He was unknown because they not only were totally depraved, they had fallen. He was unknown because of the spiritual darkness, the spiritual blindness. The world was unable to recognize them. Recognize him. That's that's the truth that's here. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. And their lack of understanding, their lack of knowing, not only is a fallen problem, that it, an evil problem of their own decisions, it is a problem that they don't even recognize. That the world, lost people, are not groping in the darkness to find God. They're not waiting on you to bring them the gospel. That's not true. They are not. They are loving evil and they are loving the world. And by nature, they are blind and unable to accept the gospel at any level. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. They don't desire it. They don't want it. They're not, 
groping around, you know, you hear all these statements about people that want to be saved, but nobody's told them the gospel. If they want to be saved, they will have the gospel and they will be saved. We're going to see that in just a moment. I don't want to get too far ahead, but we need to do away with this foolishness. They are in the darkness. They are blind. They cannot see it. They don't know to respond to the light because they don't perceive the light. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. I want to give you two examples from the sister books in, uh, of Paul's writing. 1 Corinthians 2, first of all, verse 14, which clearly states what I've just said, that no one is desiring, nobody's seeking after God on their own, in their own nature. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You have a problem if you're not a Christian and if you're not regenerate. The problem is you're dead, you're blind, and you cannot, you are not a spiritual person, you are a fleshly person. There's there's those in this room today who are fleshly. You, You think the gospel is foolish. You can't help but think it's foolish because the gospel is perceived spiritually. By the spiritual man who's been made alive. And your spiritual man is dead in sin and trespasses. And so the gospel is foolish. The gospel makes no sense. It can only be spiritually appraised, spiritually understood. Look further, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Some of you have been reading the book by John Piper, God is the Gospel. I've read it. Reread it. Molded over, thought about it. He, Paul repeats this truth about the spiritual nature of the gospel and the fact that men are blind to the light of the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Do you see that? They are blind so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ shining. It's not a problem of the shining light. The light is shining. The light is not being defeated. It's not being pushed back. It's not losing effectiveness. The gospel is as bright and as shining today as it ever has been. It is not losing. It is winning. I know, I know it's popular belief to think that the gospel is being defeated in some way or that it's losing. It's not losing. It's gaining. It's winning. Christ's church is being successful. The gospel is being extended. It's not being retracted. It's being poured out further than it ever has. In our day, there are more Bibles in more language than ever in the history of the world. There are more missionaries on more foreign mission fields than ever in the history of the world. More, fewer people, fewer and fewer and fewer people have, can honestly say they do not know the gospel or they have not heard of Christ. Fewer and fewer because the gospel is winning. The gospel is going forth. Jesus is keeping His word. He's doing what He promised He would do. The problem is not the gospel. The problem is not Christ. The problem is not the light. The problem is that men love darkness and men are blind to the light. 
See, there are four, you might write these down, it might help. There are four ways that you can understand the sin of mankind. If you wonder why I've written my sermon, I'll take a little break here. I've written my sermon because I spilled my coffee on my computer. Computers do not like coffee. I do, they don't. So uh, Wednesday, I spilt my coffee on my laptop and ruined it. Uh, and I headed to Pascagoula on Thursday. So I wrote my sermon the old-fashioned way. Again, I had it all nice and neat, wonderful outline. It was beautiful. <laughs> I just couldn't get to it. <laughs> so I had to rewrite it. <clears throat> but... It, I think, it, I think it was helpful. I had to think that because if not, I feel like an idiot. <laughs> I like to think God, you know, sovereignly did that. So I'd know this better than I did before. I rethought it and replanned it. And when I was replanning, I thought, you know, you can look at, there's, there's different theories on man's sinfulness. How sinful is man? Have you ever thought about that? There's different ways to look at that. I want you to understand best I can explain it to you. You can see man and his sin as a fall of improvement. You can see it that way. Okay? And it's a very popular theory. The theory goes like this. Man was innocent, but yet he, in his innocence, he did not know right from wrong. And in the fall, he gained the knowledge of right and wrong. And so he, since then, he's... Known God, learned God better. <clears throat> this is a theory of the evolving of man. You know, Adam was the dumbest among us, and now we've gotten progressively smarter about God and about the world and about everything. And there's a lot of people who actually believe this theory. I don't. I think if you look, there's no way we improved. Adam was the best creation. And since Him, we've been falling further and further, declining in every area, physically, spiritually, mentally, socially. We've declined. We haven't improved. So that's one theory. Man's fall improved his situation. The second theory is that man's fall was partial. It was not complete. It was just part of him that fell. It might be illustrated by the fact, the first theory is that man was here and then he fell and he climbed upward, up the mountain. He was at the bottom of the mountain and he climbed up. Okay? This theory says he fell. He didn't climb, he fell, but he's clinging on to the edge. And he's hollering for help. All he needs is somebody to just help him up. He's partially fallen. He's partly good. You hear this from those who might preach, like I said last week, that there's good in everyone and all we got to do is unlock the goodness in a person. They just got to know their inner self. It's Oprahism on steroids, you know. <laughs> unlock the you inside of you. I've said it many times. I want to say it again. You don't want me to unlock the guy that's inside of me. If he gets out, a lot of people are going to get hurt. Not physically, probably, maybe, maybe not. Depends on what mood I'm in. But mentally and socially and emotionally, 
There are going to be a lot of hurt people because I'm not a good person. But this theory says people have all this good in them and they just, the fall just kind of put that in a prison. Now we got to unlock it and let them back out, help them back up. There's a third theory. By the way, everybody believes one of these four things. The third one is that man's fall was complete, but he's still able to do some good things. He completely fell, but he kind of landed off the cliff. He landed on a ledge, not quite all the way to the bottom. He just kind of landed there. He's stuck. He can't get out completely by himself, but he's still partly a good person, able to do some good. A long time ago, Professor Barnhouse said, uh, it's like a man in a coffin. People who believe this are people who believe men are in coffins, but yet they got one arm outside doing some more things, helping themselves. A lot of you believe this, whether you know it or not. You use the biblical language of fall and sin and depravity, and you say, oh, we're all terrible. We're all bad. We, I, I am. I need Jesus. I sure am glad I got him. I sure am glad I figured it out. I sure am glad I was smarter than that guy next to me. I sure am glad I prayed that prayer, walked that aisle. I did it. I saved myself in part. I couldn't do it all. Jesus had to do his part, 99%. But there was that 1% that I had to do to save myself. There's a lot of people who believe this theory. It is unbiblical. There is nowhere in the Scripture where we can find proof that we are to do not even 1% towards salvation. The biblical picture is the fourth picture, and it is that man's fall was total. It was total. He fell to the bottom of the ravine, and when he fell, he was crushed. And now he lays motionless, with no sight, with no hearing ability. He has no hope. He's dead. That's what happened in Adam. The whole race fell and the whole race was dead. We're born in sin. Psalm 139 tells us we were conceived in wickedness. Psalm 51 tells us there's all these promises from the Scripture that we are totally and completely fallen. So what do we have to do to be saved? Are you saying we're hopeless? There's nothing that can save us? No. That brings me to the end of the message to to the end of the conclusion here to say this first peter to move us into our last point first peter 2 9 says but you are chosen generation a royal priesthood a holy nation his own special people that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light The picture that painted by the Bible is that man fell. He fell completely. He's completely unable to do anything for himself. And yet God, based on his sovereign choosing, allows some through grace given by Christ to come into the light. He enables them to do it. He breathes life into their dead nostril. He takes the scales off their eyes. He gives hearing to the deaf. And He brings them into the marvelous light of the gospel. Jesus came and He was unknown because of darkness, because of total depravity. The truth that men rejected the light when He came into the world illustrates the great truths that I pointed out at the beginning. Jesus Christ is glorious. 
All men are totally fallen and God's sovereign election is the basis of our salvation. So there had to be a group of people who it didn't happen to them. You know, they actually understood and knew who Jesus was. And you would think that would be the Israelites. And so John writes in verse 11, He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. I believe, and many others do, that own, his own, when it says that, it means it's talking, speaking of Israel. Specifically, he came to Israel, and Israel didn't receive him. We, this isn't a new development for the nation of Israel. Israel had rejected God from the very beginning. In Abraham, we find a man who gets a promise from God in chapter 15, and then sets out to do his own work to get his own descendant in Ishmael. And God comes back and says, you're going to have a descendant. He said, oh, I know. I have Ishmael. God says, that's not him. I said, Sarah would have a child. Not Hagar. And so Abraham says in Genesis 17, verse 18, this amazing amazing statement. Cannot Ishmael suffice? I know you have your own way, but cannot Ishmael be enough? God says no. Israel had rejected God from the very beginning. Abraham rejected him. Isaac rejected God and wanted to choose and pass his lineage on to Esau. Jacob, God intervened and Jacob received the blessing. And then you would think maybe they've learned their lesson. But instead, Jacob's sons try to kill Joseph, their brother, who was the chosen one of God to continue the seed to Christ and the lineage of Christ. And they throw him in a pit, they sell him into slavery, and yet God rescues him, saves him. You would think, okay, he saved them. Now they're finished rejecting him. But then Moses rises up, leads the people of Israel out of Egypt into freedom before they even get to the Red Sea. They haven't even started their exodus out of the country yet, and yet they start to say, were there not enough graves? Exodus 14. Were there not enough tombs and graves in Egypt that we could have worked there our lives and died? Why did you bring us out here to die, Moses? They rejected God's way. They rejected Him from the very beginning. In Jeremiah, they rejected Him. We find the prophet weeping over the people and yet the people not wanting to hear. In Jeremiah 44, 16, the people said, We will not hear you. We will not hear you. He was speaking on behalf of God, telling them of the truth of God's love for them and the grace of God on their lives and yet they were totally rejecting him. Amos came to the northern tribes at Bethel and preached the word of God and the king sent him away and said do not bring these uh, messages to the kingdom again. They had rejected him completely. They rejected John the Baptist and now they rejected and hated Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells the parable of this account in Matthew 21. And this is how I want to bring us to an end today. Matthew 21. Because I want you to understand that we are no different than Israel. Before you say, boy, Israel, they should have got it. They had the prophets. They had the truth of the Bible. They had everything. Why could they not accept Christ as the Savior? Why could they not? Why wouldn't they accept him? Matthew twenty-one thirty-three through 45. Jesus tells a parable. 
Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive his fruits. And the vine dresser took his servants, beat one, killed one and stoned another. Again, he sent another servant. More than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his own son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to another vine dresser who will render to him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, Did you ever read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given a nation bearing the fruit of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And look at the response of the chief priests. They perceived that he was speaking of them. I want to tell you the truth. Israel rejected. He came to his own and his own received him not. And this is the parable that Jesus is telling. The the owner owner of the vineyard represents God. The vineyard represents God. The world, the servants that are there, the vine dressers that are there is Israel. And the servants that are coming to collect for the master are the prophets. And they killed the prophets. They murdered the prophets. They rejected the prophets. And so God, in His mercy, in His grace, in His love, throughout the Old Testament, continued to send them more messengers, more servants. And they continued to reject it. And then God, out of His great love and mercy, sent His own Son saying, They will respect My Son. And what did they do with His Son? They killed Him. They murdered Him. They hung Him on a tree. And the end is true. God took the vineyard from the vine dressers known as Israel and gave it to the church. He gave it to the church. And now He has established in the church His people, His chosen race, His lineage who will carry the light into the world. But the picture here is that even the church, although it has no excuse, is failing. The church also is rejecting. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have witness of Christ's ministry. We have 2,000 years of church history. And yet I tell you, it is no small thing, but that whole of the church today is rejecting the light of the gospel of the glory of God in Christ. The church is doing it. Many of you still are in the darkness because you love your evil. Some of you have been awakened to the truth of the light and yet you, like those unworthy vine dressers, are rejecting the commission of God on your life and you're rejecting your responsibility in this life. And so I say to you, as John did to his audience, if you're here today 
and you do not see the light and God grants you the ability to see it, come to Him. He is the only hope that you have. He, Jesus Christ, is the only Savior of the world. There is no other coming. It's Him. Come to Him. And if you're already there, you're already with Him, you have great responsibility. Your responsibility includes the sharing of the light of God through the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel to all of those around you because the vine dressers will be responsible to the vineyard owner. We will give an account for our life spent here. And may it not be said of us that we rejected him, but may it be said that we accepted and took the responsibility given and lived it. Let's pray. Father, these truths are great. I pray that you would work them into our hearts slowly over time. I pray you would allow the people here to see the truth, And I know that the truth, Jesus Christ, you will set them free. I pray for all of those who, unfortunately, in our midst, here today, in this room, who love darkness. They love evil. Lord, I pray that you be merciful, that you be gracious to them, and that you show them the light that you wake their dead spirit with your breath of life. Give them new life that they might know Jesus Christ and see his great glory before it's too late. Father, I pray that those who are Christians in this room who have been given the grace to see the light would then in turn share that grace, share that light, show the light to those that they live with and around. Father, whatever whatever you need to do in us, move us out of the way so that your glory might shine brightly and so that others might see you as the great, glorious, all-encompassing joy of the world. We love you and praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us. If you're...